Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. I am reading you a series uh, of The Untethered Soul, The Journey Beyond Yourself. And we're learning a little bit about the voices that uh, plague us sometimes and how to make them our best friend uh, and kind of manipulate them to the point where they're cheering us on instead of making us doubt our decisions, which I like. Uh, and I can't have enough of guidance in that department. So I'm really excited. Uh, we are continuing with chapter three today. Uh, and I am not sure what order I'm going to put these in as far as how many per day and when, uh, because some chapters like the last book are like 17 minutes and some are 30 slash 40, depending on, uh, the depth that the chapter goes into. So I'm just going to do them individually and then put them together uh, time-wise because I know that uh, my great audience who listens to these podcast episodes only have so much time in the day to listen to them. Uh, so I want to try to be cognizant of that also. But today, uh, this is chapter three and it's called Who Are You? Ramana Maharshi. 1879 to 1950, a great teacher in the yogic tradition, used to say that to attain inner freedom, one must continuously and sincerely ask the question, who am I? He taught that this was more important than reading books, learning mantras, or going to holy places. Just ask, who am I? Who sees what I see? Who hears what I hear? Who knows when I am aware? Who am I? Let's explore this question by playing a game. Make believe that you and I are having a conversation. Typically in Western cultures, when someone comes up to you and asks, excuse me, who are you? You don't admonish them for asking such a deep question. You tell them your name, for example, is Sally Smith. But I'm going to challenge this response by taking out a piece of paper and writing the letters S-A-L-L-Y-S-M-I-T-H and then showing it to you. Is that who you are? A collection of letters? Is that who sees when you see? Obviously not. You say, okay, you're right. I'm sorry. I'm not Sally Smith. That's just really a name that people call me. It's a label. Really, I'm Frank Smith's wife. No way. That's not even politically correct nowadays. How could you be Frank Smith's wife? Are you saying you didn't exist before you met Frank and you would cease to exist if he died or you got remarried? Frank Smith's wife can't be who you are. Again, that's just another label, the result of another situation or event that you participated in. But then, who are you? This time, you respond, okay, now you've gotten my attention. My name is Sally Smith. I was born in 1965 in New York. I lived in Queens with my parents, Harry and Mary Jones, until I was five years old. Then we moved to New Jersey, and I went to Newark Elementary School. I got all A's in school, and in the fifth grade, I played Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz. I started dating in the ninth grade, and my first boyfriend was Joe. I went to Rutgers College, where I met and married Frank Smith, and that's who I am. Wait a minute. That's a fascinating story, but didn't I ask you what has happened to you since you were born? I asked you, who are you? You've just described all these experiences, but who had these experiences? Wouldn't you still be in there, aware of your existence, even if you had gone to a different college? So you contemplate this and you realize that never in your life have you asked yourself that question and really meant it. Who am I? That is what Ramana Maharshi was asking. So you ponder this more seriously and you say, okay, I am the body that is occupying this space. I am five foot six. I weigh 135 pounds and here I am. 
when you were Dorothy in the fifth grade play, you weren't five foot six, you weren't four foot six. So which are you? Are you the four foot six person or are you the five foot six person? Weren't you in there when you were Dorothy? You told me you were. Aren't you the one who had the experience of being Dorothy in the fifth grade play and is now having the experience of trying to answer these questions? Isn't this the same you? Perhaps we need to step back for a moment and ask some exploratory questions before returning to the core question. When you were 10 years old, didn't you look in the mirror and see a 10-year-old body? Wasn't that the same that now sees an adult body? What you looked at has changed, but what about you, the one who's looking? Isn't there a continuity of being? Wasn't it the same being that looked in the mirror throughout the years? You have to contemplate this very carefully. Another question. When you go to sleep every night, do you dream? Who dreams? What does it mean to dream? You answer, well, it's like a motion picture. It plays in my mind and I watch it. Who watches it? I do. The same who looks in the mirror? Does the same you who's reading these words also look in the mirror and watch these dreams? When you're awake, you know you saw that dream. There's a continuity of consciousness and awareness of being. Ramana Maharshi was just asking the very same simple questions. Who sees when you see? Who hears when you hear? Who watches when you dream? Who looks at the image in the mirror? Who is that having all these experiences? If you try to just give honest, intuitive answers, you're simply going to say, me. It's me. I'm in here experiencing all of this. That about That's about the best answer that you'll have. It's actually pretty easy to see that you're not the objects you look at. It's a classic case of subject-object. It's you, the subject, that's looking at the objects. So we don't have to go through every object in the universe and say that the object is not you. We can very easily generalize by saying that if you are the one who's looking at something, then that something is not you. So right away, in one fell swoop, you know what you're not. You're not on the outside world. You're the one who's on the inside looking out at that world. That was easy. Now at least we've eliminated the countless things on the outside. But who are you? And where are you if you're not outside with all of the other things? You just have to pay attention and realize that you would still be in there experiencing feelings even if all the outside objects had disappeared. Imagine how much fear you would feel. You might also feel frustration and even anger. But who would be feeling these things? Again, you say me. But that's the right answer. The same me experiences both the outside world and the inside emotions. To take a clear look at this, imagine that you're watching a dog playing outdoors. Suddenly you hear a noise right behind you, a hiss like a rattlesnake. Would you still be looking at the dog with the same intensity of focus? Of course not. You'd be feeling tremendous fear inside. Though the dog would still be playing in front of you, you'd be completely preoccupied with the experience of fear. All of your attention can be very quickly absorbed into your emotions. But who feels the fear? Isn't it the same you who is watching the dog, who feels love when you feel love? Can't you feel so much love that it's hard to keep your eyes open? You can become so absorbed in your beautiful inner feelings or frightened by the inner fears, but it's hard to focus on outer objects. In essence, inside and outside objects compete for your attention. You're in there having both inner and outer experiences, but who are you? To explore this more deeply, answer another question. Don't you have times when you're not having emotional experiences? Instead, you just feel quiet inside. You're still in there, but you're just aware of peaceful quiet. Eventually, you'll begin to realize that the outside world and the flow of inner emotions come and go. But you, the one who experiences these things, remain consciously aware of whatever passes before you. But where are you? 
Maybe we can find you in your thoughts. Rene Descartes, a great philosopher, once said, I think, therefore I am. But is that really what's going on? The dictionary defines the verb to think as to form thoughts, to use the mind to consider ideas and make judgments. The question is, who is using the mind to form thoughts and then manipulate them into ideas and judgments? Does this experiencer of thoughts exist even when thoughts are not present? Fortunately, you don't have to think about it. You're very aware of your presence of being, your sense of existence, without the help of your thoughts. When you go into deep meditation, for example, the thoughts stop, you know, that they've, you know that they've stopped and you don't think it, you're just simply aware of no thoughts. You come back and say, wow, I went into this deep meditation and for the first time my thoughts completely stopped. I was in a place of complete peace, harmony, and quiet. If you're in there experiencing the peace that occurs when your thoughts stop, then obviously your existence is not dependent upon the act of thinking. Thoughts can stop and they also get extremely noisy. Sometimes you have more thoughts than other times. You may even tell someone, my mind is driving me crazy. Ever since he said those things to me, I can't even sleep. My mind just won't shut up. Whose mind? Who is noticing these thoughts? Isn't it at you? Don't you hear your thoughts inside? Aren't you aware of their existence? In fact, can't you get rid of them? If you start to have a thought that you don't like, can't you try to make it go away? People struggle with thoughts all the time. Who is it that is aware of the thoughts and who is it that struggles with them? Again, you have a subject-object relationship with your thoughts. You are the subject and the thoughts are just another object that you can be aware of. You are not your thoughts. You are simply aware of your thoughts. And finally, you say, fine, I'm not anything in the outside world. I'm not any of the emotions. These outer and inner objects come and go and I experience them. Plus, I'm not the thoughts. They can be quiet or noisy, happy or sad. Thoughts are just something else that I'm aware of. But who am I? It starts to become a serious question. Who am I? Who is having all these physical emotions and mental experiences? So you contemplate this question a little deeper. It's done by letting go of the experiences and noticing who is left. You'll begin to notice who is experiencing the experience. Eventually, you'll get to a point within yourself where you realize that it's you, the experiencer, and have a certain quality. And that quality is awareness, consciousness, an intuitive sense of existence. You know that you're in there. You don't have to think about it. You just know. You can think about it if you want to, but you know that you're thinking about it. You exist regardless, thoughts or no thoughts. To make this more experiential, let's try a consciousness experiment. Notice that with a single glance at a room or out a window, you instantaneously see the full detail of everything that's in front of you. You are effortlessly aware of all the objects that are within the scope of your vision, both near and far away. Without moving your head or your eyes, you perceive all of the intricate detail of what you immediately see. Look at all the colors, the variations of light, the grain of the wood furniture, the architecture of the buildings, and the variations of bark and leaves on the trees. Notice that you take all of this in at once without having to think about it. No thoughts are necessary, you just see it. Now try to use those thoughts to isolate, label, and describe all of the intricate detail of what you see. How long would it take? For your mental voice to describe all of that detail to you versus the instantaneous snapshot of consciousness just seeing. When you use just look without creating thoughts, your consciousness is effortlessly aware of and fully comprehends all that it sees. Consciousness is the highest word that you'll ever utter. There is nothing higher or deeper than consciousness. Consciousness is pure awareness. But what is awareness? Let's try another experiment. Let's say you're in a room. 
looking at a group of people on a piano. Now make believe the piano ceases to exist in your world. Would you have a major problem with that? You say no, I don't think so. I'm not attached to pianos. Okay, then make believe the people in the room cease to exist. Are you still okay? Can you handle it? You say, sure, I like being alone. Now, believe your awareness doesn't exist. Just turn it off. How are you doing now? What would it be like if your awareness didn't exist? It's actually pretty simple. You wouldn't be there. There would be no sense of me. There would be no sense in there to say, wow, I used to be in there, but now I'm not. There would no longer be an awareness of being. And without awareness of being or consciousness, there is nothing. Are there objects? Who knows? If no one is aware of the objects, their existence or non-existence becomes completely irrelevant. It doesn't matter how many things are in front of you or if you turn off the consciousness, there's nothing. If you're conscious, however, there can be nothing in front of you, but you are fully aware that there's nothing. It's really not that complicated and very enlightening. So now if I ask you, who are you? You answer, I am the one who sees. From back in here somewhere, I look out and I am aware of the events, thoughts, and emotions that pass before me. If you go very deep, that is where you live. You live in a seat of consciousness. A true spiritual being lives there, without effort and without intent. Just as you effortlessly look outside and see all that you see, you'll eventually sit far enough back inside to see all of your thoughts and emotions as well as your outer form. All of these objects are in front of you. The thoughts are closer in and the emotions are a little farther away and form is way out there. Behind it all, there you are. You go so deep that you realize that that's where you've always been. At each stage of your life, you have seen different thoughts, emotions, and objects pass before you. But you have always been in the conscious receiver of all of what was. Now, you are in your inner center of consciousness. You're behind everything, just watching. That is your true home. Take everything else away, and you're still there, aware that everything is gone. But take the center of awareness away, and there's nothing. That center is the seat itself. From that seat, you are aware that there are thoughts, emotions, and a world coming in through your senses. But now that you're aware, you're aware. That is the seat of the Buddhist self one, the Hindu Atman two, and the Judeo-Christian soul. The great mystery begins once you take that seat deep within.